Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. And now, a word from our sponsor, Paperless Parts. Making parts is a challenge. We all know that. But luckily, you don't have to go at it alone. Paperless Parts is there for you and has a publication called In the Shop. In the Shop features stories written by manufacturing leaders who, like you, are tackling these difficult challenges every day and sharing the solutions they've discovered along the way. You'll hear from people such as the founder of a small family shop or even the president of Mastercam, all who give us the tribal knowledge and tools we need so we don't have to reinvent the wheel in our own shop. You might even come across one story in the shop from a tech expert who has advice on digitizing that area of your business that is keeping you up at night. Another might be written by a shop president who's successfully hiring right now amidst the labor shortage. Whatever the topic and whomever the author, if you're in the world of manufacturing, I guarantee there's a story in the shop that you'll relate to or find helpful in some way. Head to paperlessparts.com forward slash in the shop to check it out. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe to get the stories sent for free straight to your inbox. Shazam! This is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. This episode with my co-host Jeff Gorman is geared towards repeat parts and thoughts on how to think of them in terms of rising costs, particularly materials, blanket orders, multiple shipments, long-term agreements. Do you have the right language and contracts if material prices increase dramatically? To not eat higher labor costs? And if you are interested in testing whether new customers will pay more but don't want to implement this across the board, we talk about A-B testing and how to use it for specific testing of pricing ideas. In this weird world, lots to consider now that we didn't have to think hard about before. Let's roll. Jeff, good to see you again. Good to see you, Jay. How are we doing today? It's one of those hot July days, and a lot of shops used to take the opportunity in July to close down, at least for the first couple of weeks, and sort of prepare themselves for the second half of the year, give folks some time off, maybe repaint, clean up the shop. It's going balls to the wall right now. and I don't think that's happening in a lot of shops. What do you see out there? Yeah, well, I can second the fact that it's hot. I've been having to bring two t-shirts to work, so I change out of one <laughs> once I get here and then put on the fresh one. Um, but definitely not too much relaxing going on that I've seen, at least. Uh, customers are, are definitely busy, been hard to schedule meetings and communicate accordingly because people have stuff that comes up, whether it be fires or big projects that are taking up time. So it's definitely yeah. something I've noticed and, and something that people are saying when they get on calls or geez, so busy lately and I'm hearing it from everyone. So I thought today we could get into talking about repeat orders, repeat parts, the way that the OEMs like to buy these parts or some of the different strategies they use, some of the nuances and challenges our customers are facing today. Does that sound like a approach to start with? 
Yeah, totally. Repeat work is definitely a hot topic here at Paperless in the office with our engineering team and also in conversations with our customers and trying to help them with their work. What, what are you hearing? What are some of the questions they're asking or frustrations they're throwing out there? First and foremost, I think people, they want to quote repeat work quicker. So I've got all this data. I've already quoted the thing. I've made it before. Why mm-hmm. is it still a time, a time sucker? Why am I still allocating my estimating hours towards repeat work, things that I've already spent time looking at and costed the job out? Like There has to be an easier way. I think that's kind of what's in the, in the back of everyone's head who's doing repeat work and seeing part numbers over and over again. But more specifically, I think, and recent events have, have definitely contributed to this, volatile material markets are probably driving you know, most of the desire to improve here. So it's, it's a challenge. You have to make sure that you're still making money. And you also have to make sure that your customer is not going to be dissatisfied with the price raise that you're showing them on the same part that they ordered from you six months or a year ago. It's a catch-22. You want to not lose customers because you're raising prices, but you have to raise prices to cover the increase in material costs or you'll lose money or at least not make as much money. I think with all the inflation numbers, it's easier for the conversation to happen with the OEMs. They probably expect it. They may not react the way you want to, and that may be a lot of posturing. And and that's a great point is a lot of this is posturing by a buyer because if they can keep you to not increasing the cost or passing along only a fraction of the cost, then they are doing their job for their company. I like that terminology, posturing for the OEM. But it sounds like what you're saying is that there's got to be posture on the job shop side. So they've got to show that posture to the OEM and say, hey, here's where we're at. This is what's going on and have the conversation. Are there any times you can recall that you've done that either successfully or not? Specifically, no, but I think we're in a good position today. There's more demand than there is supply. And there's a lot, as long as you're not egregious about it, as long as you aren't taking them to the cleaners, taking advantage of the situations, they, they know, they know. And the reality is, if you frame it in the sense that you want me to be around in two years and keep making these parts for you, then I need to make a profit or I'll disappear and you're going to have a lot more headaches than paying a little more for the parts than me not being here. Yeah, totally. You're going to have to find someone else that can figure out how to make the thing and make it the way you want it. Now that resonates with some folks. Other purchasing agents really don't care. <laughs> they're out for themselves and, and they're beat on by their bosses. And that's the company culture of the OEM. However, that is the reality. There is more demand for shops than there is supply. And that's one of the things you and I beat on is that you want to increase your customer base. You want to always be able to have the capacity to quote new customers in case you do lose a customer. But I think I don't remember all the acronyms. And for the listener, Rapid was primarily a one-off shop prototypes. And we did, though, have a production sheet metal group because what we found over time was that we were the production source for a lot of companies who had a 
high mix, very low volume. And when I say low volume, they may buy five parts or five pieces of a unique part number twice a year. Not very interesting to a lot of production shops. So they wanted though, and they expected, rightly so, that the part they got six months ago looked like the part that they were gonna to get tomorrow. And the part six months from now would be exactly the same. So we, we did set up a separate production shop. We did things more the way the traditional manufacturers did. For example, when a part came in that in the prototype shop that we'd already made before, exact same part, it was more efficient to totally re-engineer the part than to try and find all the files and that and put it out to the floor. We re-engineered it from scratch. You don't do that in a production environment. You want the same programs going to the machining center or to the press break, and you want the same sequence of operations. You want the same types of welds, uh, where they're welded, that sort of thing. So when you have a LTA or long-term agreement in place, you need to be conscious of that expectation of the customer. Do you, you have a sense now of the time frame? that our customers are being asked to commit to pricing for you? I've seen anywhere from a year to five years. I don't know, I guess, the frequency at which people are agreeing to these types of contracts, but they're definitely lengthy. And we know that materials fluctuating on a a much shorter timeframe. So even at a year, you really can't safely assess what's going to be a good price a year from now. Absolutely. We have, it could go down to be in the shop's favor, but we can't assume that. What are strategies that some of the shops you're talking with are using to make sure they are covered from a material standpoint? Well, first, just quoting material higher to begin with. So now that we're in a spot where we know that this thing's fluctuating, mm-hmm. we're going to put a greater pad on material costs just in case when the time comes that price has risen. Do they do that through the actual material cost, or do they use it as a markup percentage or both? I've seen both. I always try to instruct people or advise people that think that markup's the way to go. If it's not a true cost, it it should be mm-hmm. you know, yeah. assigned as such. I, I, I agree. I was curious how they... Yeah. And for anyone who might not understand what why we're talking about that, in paperless, it's very easy to define cost versus profit or price. Mm-hmm. Um, so price being the sum of your cost and profit. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big fan for the purpose of analytics to always keep that very clean, cut and dry, that this is a cost and this is contributing to my profit. So that way you can go back and make sense of, of how you got got some. But, but with that, when you start to adjust a markup on material, now you can go back and see how that impacts your win rate, how that impacts. You know, right. The analytics. Right. You have analytics now that you can check on that. Are there other things that they're doing in the contract to protect themselves? Yeah, shorter quote validity period. So this quote's only valid for a week. And maybe people were doing month, saying a quote was valid for a month and their customer had a month to decide. And now they're going to shorten that timeline and say, this is subject to change within a week. So that's one simple way. You've you've always got your terms and conditions. Mm -hmm. So you can say, Let's say a material goes up 50%. They might have in their term, terms and condition, this 
quote is subject to change if X, Y, and Z occurs. Yeah. So you could put a 17% of the quote content is material cost based at $2 and 89 cents a pound or something like that. So some of the OEMs are even asking to see the quote presented as such. They want to see material versus production cost broken out for each part number. And I've heard of customers having the OEM come back to them and say, you know, your production cost seems right, but we've seen that this material less elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Can you work on that? Or is there room to adjust that? Are those particular industries that are asking the shops? Those are particular industries. Aerospace is primarily it, at least my understanding. The other option I would imagine is you could have the OEM buy the material and supply it. Yeah, that seems like the way to go. I don't know how easy that is to do because I've never been in that conversation, but I was at a shop once and a customer was making cabinets and Mm -hmm. it was a long-term agreement for, let's say he's making 500 units every six months or something like that. And he didn't want to commit to the quote given the time and place with material volatility and, and have to be buying that material six months down the line at a greater price. So mm-hmm. what he did was just quoted the production costs or the fabrication costs and set up, up an agreement with his customer or the OEM who's going to purchase and send the material to his shop where he'll do the production. So he's just offloaded that risk to the buyer. Have you seen it where the shop places the order and the customer pays for the material? Oh yeah. Customer supplied material is if you're familiar with operations in paperless in the material section, many shops will have a customer supplied material there Mm -hmm. and they might capture a markup on that material in the quote somehow, Mm -hmm. Um, but they're not actually buying and charging for it Yeah, for handling, whatever it might be. And that could Uh, be a cost as well. Absolutely. There's some administrative overhead and maybe some on the floor to receive the material and that sort of thing. Yeah, interesting. An acronym that is used is estimated annual usage. And I know I didn't like that because you have a customer who says, oh yeah, we're gonna buy a hundred of these from you a year and we need 10 of them now. And they dangle the carrot. That, that can get really dangerous. They so they want you to give them the hundred piece price for the, for the 10. That's, that's exactly right. And we, I think we talked about cherry picking a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. This isn't necessarily the same form of cherry picking, but they'll ask you for the EAU quote mm-hmm. on 500 units. And then they'll come back to you and say, actually, we only need a hundred. And then they want the 500 unit piece price. Yep. So yeah. It's a, a form of cherry picking, in, in my opinion. And they'll say, well, you're not going to make all 500 at once. So and yep. on the North Shore of Boston, the Eaton, the semiconductor equipment manufacturer, they put so many shops out of business because they would have EAUs, but they wouldn't commit to a definite buy quantity. And that industry tended to be very cyclical. And when the downturn came, Instead of buying 100, they might buy two. And they expected the shops to produce quantity two at whatever quantity that they were. Typically, they were making more than the buy and putting them on the shelf, knowing they could send them off later on. They couldn't do that anymore. And man, a lot of shops 
and go out of business. It's something that, that, to, to watch for. That's interesting. So I, I don't know if I was necessarily clear on this before or if I am now, but is that sort of the primary difference between a LTA long-term agreement and EAU is that an LTA is guaranteed purchase? Well, uh, versus... uh, it depends how the contract is, is written, but typically I would say an LTA means that there is a written contract and it's committing to buying over a certain period of time, at least some quantity. So you may have an EAU of 500 pieces, but we will commit to 250. And the buy time frame might be a year, it might be 18 months or two years to give the OEM a little more flexibility. But they they will take the parts. If, if, if 18 months comes up and they haven't got them all and you manufactured them, they're on your shelf, boom, you ship them off and then you got to wrangle with getting paid. That's another whole issue. However, they are legally obligated to buy them. Fascinating stuff. I understand you haven't, you had said you hadn't dealt with that type of contract as much or have as much experience there, but what are the trade-offs, I guess, of doing that type of work versus one-off jobs, especially in, in the market that we're in today? Well, it's easier to work with less skilled people in the shop often because you are making the same part over and over again and you can automate the process as much as possible so you can spend the time automating the process the other is that you commit to a price you're going to make it multiple times if you can figure out how to take the machining hours down 10 percent that cost savings is yours additional profit for you. So there's an incentive for you to get better. And if you're going to buy a machining center for a customer for maybe more or maybe even expand your facility, you want the guarantee that that it's running. Is it beyond this order? It's even that that's where a five-year agreement really makes sense. Something like that. You essentially you're partnering with the customer. And those tend to be pretty embedded relationships, but it's important for the shop owner to have a comfort level that the business is going to be there, that the machines have work coming in and that the other investments that they're making will come to fruit. And a lot of times on something like that, a shop will operate at a slight loss until they figure out how to make it right. And I don't think our customers do a lot in the automotive industry, but that's common in the automotive industry. They've had enough experience. They know there's a threshold crossover point where they will be profitable and they are willing to sort of suck it up in the beginning. A lot of times though, you don't charge an NRE for a long-term agreement. Again, you have to have the trust in the relationship. I used to see this when we prototypes, the production shops wouldn't include any engineering charge in there and they would be much lower priced than us. Maybe they'll win the order. Not, but that doesn't work when you're making one, right? No, they'll win the order, but lose money. So so is that, why is there no NRE charge? Is that just because when you're making thousands and thousands of parts, that's going to be spread across each one of them or? Yeah, it's, it's what I call noise. 
it's such a small, small piece of, of the job. And again, you typically do this with when you have relationships with customers, you're going to win a, a good chunk of the parts that come through. Quick sidecar here to the conversation, but on the NRE topic, are you a fan of showing that to the customer on the quote or is that baked into the cost of the unit? Well, it, it, it depends on the customer, depends what it is. You may, if it's a fixture, you may break it out, but then you have to be careful because then the customer says, well, I own that fixture. So you have to have language in there that they don't. It, in terms of engineering, now I we always embedded that in the quote. Interesting. That's something that comes up from time to time. And I think everybody likes to do it their own way. There's not really a right or wrong way, mm-hmm. but I'm just curious. And, and a lot of time it's driven by the OEM. Because if you think about it, the more things that they have to put together to get to a price, the more of a hassle it is for them. So, And based on my understanding of OEMs, the more things for them to ask you to lower the price on. That is why they may ask you to break it out. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. That, that's a great reason to not want to break it out. Well, I didn't mean to derail the conversation there, but we were talking a little bit about repeat work. And mm-hmm. obviously this is intertwined with an LTA or EAU mm-hmm. contract where you're going to be making the part again and again. Mm-hmm. Just curious sort of what your thoughts are on repeat work and how you've dealt with repeat or similar work in the past. Well, I think it's it's great if you can have repeat work at a price that makes sense for your shop. I always view prototypes and production as like oil and water. You have to decide which one you're going to do because if you try to do both, it ain't a good picture. So there is a lot more in terms of dollars repeat work out there. And I think shops gravitate towards one or the other. And when I say prototypes, it's it's more the, you may be making the parts, but it's a sporadic basis. The customer's not going to give you an estimated annual usage. The benefit, absolutely though, if you if that's the way you want to go, you you don't need as many programmers. The setups are repeatable. So you can invest in a fixture that saves time and allows a less skilled person to put parts in and out. How you want to run your shop, it's a philosophy thing. And there can be a lot of really good money in repeat work and you can get a lot of dollars quickly, particularly if you land a contract with a company that their product explodes in growth. Totally. We, yeah, and we sometimes would bridge the gap between prototype and production with customers. And that was really good money too. We were fast turnaround. So they needed a hundred, 200 pieces. We would do that. You said fast turnaround and that, that kind of turned a light on in my head. That's the main thing that I've noticed. I feel like at right now, the last couple of months, this idea of lead time has become much more of a lever in, I guess, the win versus loss of a quote. And I don't know if, if LTAs kind of have that. Well, see, here's the difficulty today is that if somebody's, if they're going to take a hundred parts or 500 parts within a year, do you make them all at once and have them sit on the shelf for 12 months? And by doing so, you have paid your team members, you've 
paid your material supplier, you've paid the electricity, all the other things involved in manufacturing those parts. However, you don't have to set it up again. So that's a consideration or does it make sense to take those 100 pieces and make 25 each three months? That again, tends to be a shop philosophy issue. And sometimes it depends upon how busy the shop is. If you don't have anything else to do, you got to keep your guys busy. All right, make a hundred, put them on the shelf, but probably none of it's true today. The flip side is if you're committed to a certain material price, then it may make sense to manufacture all 100 now. The other part is a lot of focus on material price, but the labor costs are going up and you can't count on the labor costs being constant or maybe you'd have a 3%, 4% annual increase. And I'm probably being generous there. Now we saw inflation in June, 9.1%. The other businesses out there like Starbucks and Walmart and McDonald's paying $20 an hour, you're going to have wage inflation in your shop. And that's another cost that's you probably can't break out, but it's not going down. And the question is, how much will it go up in your shop? A couple of weeks ago, you were explaining how manufacturing being far removed from the consumer makes the industry kind of less susceptible to this fluctuation. Does that stand true for this whole inflation thing or, or not really? Well, it's removed from the consumer, but still, if you've got somebody in your shop and they're working really hard at $17 an hour and Target's advertising 20, Starbucks is advertising 20. Maybe they won't like it, but they may give it a shot and then you lose them at least temporarily or maybe permanently. If they go to another shop that says, okay, we will pay them $20 an hour after they've decided that being a barista isn't, isn't a life <laughs> satisfying life choice. Well, what I guess would we expect our parts to go up 9.1% is, is what I'm trying to ask. Or- oh, yeah. yeah. Well, materials, what have materials gone up? And I don't know. It, it's it's so whack. I'm involved in a construction project now, and it's not metal, but drywall, I think we've had three or four price increases since the beginning of the year. It's crazy. And well, I'm going to have to get copper pipes, right? Well, copper's actually come down some now. But yeah, for a time, it was... The highest has been in a long, long time. It's it, more than anything, it's unpredictable. And trying to protect yourself in a long-term agreement into a in contract so that you are making money or you're not getting hurt by material price increases. Here's the other thing that's hitting shops too, energy, right? Particularly if you've got a shop that's got AC, your, your electricity costs in the summer, and particularly in the southern half of the country, when the price, or depending on how you're heating your shop, natural gas seems to not be as dramatically affected as the oil. But there are, there's so many, that 9.1, it encompasses so many different things. You got to ship the parts. You've got this demand. You've got to increase the square feet of your facility. It may cost double what it did five years ago to add another 10,000 feet. 
even if you got the land already on your property. If you don't have the land, okay, now you're paying more for the land too. You're competing against the Amazons who are creating the industrial warehouses. Yeah, I mean, tons of stuff going on there. If you could give us one piece of advice, Jay, what would that be? <laughs> you're setting me up, Jeff. <laughs> you know me, I'm always saying, raise your prices, raise your prices, do A-B testing. And what I mean by that, A-B testing is you charge and, and typically you want to do this for new prospects, but you charge a new prospect a maybe 110% of your standard price and you charge new prospect B 120% of your price. You find out what's sticky. Is it, is it 10%? Is it 20%? Whatever. But A-B testing means you move, you do something different than you are doing now, but more than anything, you, you raise your prices. And I know if all the shops did that, it would contribute more to inflation but i want our customers to be in business and it's important for the u.s to have a strong manufacturing base we need the profits to stay in business to buy the new equipment to pay our people a fair wage and expand there is more and more business that will be required to be manufactured in the u.s and our listeners, the shops we are doing business with, they are the bedrock, the foundation of all this. Obviously, I'm pretty passionate about this whole thing. I do have a question for you, though, and I am not an expert in the nuances of paperless's pricing engine. And it was cumbersome in our ERP system to quote and in particular, quote, repeat jobs. And there's a aspect of you want the control of locking prices. So if you are increasing your material prices, you don't want that to cascade through an old quote because then that distorts the price of the old quote. You want that old quote to be the same. What, what you sent the customer, that's what you want to see when you go into it. Can you talk to me about how paperless handles repeat quotes and how as an estimator you can lock or unlock some of the attributes such as material price increases as you're going through the process. Absolutely. The way I sort of think about repeat work as it flows through paperless, a little bit like this. So you get a part number, right? You get an RFQ, it's got a part number and this is a repeat part. So paperless is going to tell you, hey, here are your quotes where this part number or this geometry is contained. Go here, check these out in, in simple terms. So now you've got sort of your, your last quote or your last quotes and you're taking a look at, but it's been a year, it's been six months, and we know prices have gone up for material, mm -hmm. labor, et cetera, all of that stuff. And you, you've got to make adjustments so that you don't get burned. Mm -hmm. I like to think of it like we're going to invoke that most recent quote, right? So we're going to pull it up and reuse it basically. Copy it. And at that point in time, since you've quoted this a year ago, you've maybe changed pricing formulas in your account. Maybe you've changed your standard markup. You've changed your hourly rate on machines that are associated with work centers on that quote. But none of that is going to take traction, I guess, unless you want it to. So we're just going to kind of re-enlist that original quote and allow you to update accordingly to, you know, the most up-to-date version, but, I guess. But that's your choice. That's your choice. And we make it really easy to do it. And we intentionally leave that to be your choice. We don't want to go manipulating things sort of blindly without mm -hmm. 
you saying that's what you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But so let's say you, you know, we're, we're making a hinge here. And last time we quoted it with the material skew four, five, six. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the way that we quoted it was we pulled in that skew from our table, got the piece price for the, the material unit that we're buying and marked it up 10%. And that was our, our cost for material on mm-hmm. the first time we quoted it. Now, as that year's gone by, the SKU unit price there has been updated in your ERP, right? Mm-hmm. And at this point in time, all you want to do is go in and kind of look into your ERP system and pull in that new price for the material, but you know that your production times and all that are accurate, or maybe you've even, right. you're making money on those and you want to keep it that way mm-hmm. and just update material price, click send and go. That. That's how I think about it in plain terms. I, I might have dumbed it down a little bit, but that, that's really the whole nine yards there. So as long as I have quoted this part previously in paperless. Or your yeah. ERP system. Or the ERP. It's not a, it, think oh, about okay. it, you get paperless last year. So you can but, pull out but, the old quote from your ERP system, use that as the template. Correct. Thanks. And I like the idea of locking and unlocking the price because you want to understand what the delta is. I'm assuming the price has gone up and not down and be able to justify that when the customer comes back going, oh my God, it's up 25%. What are you guys doing to me? Say, here's what changed and why. And it makes paperless makes it really easy to do that. Come in and says, so-and-so changed this to that price from, from this price at this day and time. So you as an estimator or manager can go in and figure out exactly how or why we got to that price, Um, which that's important when we have those hard conversations that you were talking about to say, Hey, look, things have gone up. Price has got to change. If you can very clearly point to why it's probably a better look for your shop and someone's going to have a hard time arguing against that. Yeah. Well, the long-term contracts are certainly being impacted by all these material price increases, all the other factors that inflation's thrown in there. I think we had a good conversation. Anything else you want to throw out there or raise your prices? I agree. I mean, <laughs> I think I got a Dunkin' Donuts coffee and it yeah. was, I think it was $4 and five cents. And I don't ever recall it getting up there. Starbucks has always that's, been yeah, that's charging say, that's, an arm yeah, and a leg, but I Starbucks thought Dunkin's range. was in. Starbucks is always been that way, but I thought Dunkin's was in the $3 club and I guess not anymore. Well, appreciate your time again. Good to see you, Jeff. And until next time, everyone, get those spindles turning and those lasers cutting. Thanks for listening to the Job Shop Show podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Not only do I read every single one, it also helps me understand what content matters most to you. Thanks again for listening to The Job Shop Show.